Hi, everybody. My name is Mel. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And um, when I start my story, I um, I went to NYU Medical School, class of 58. Um, and then I went uh, to Bellevue Hospital, third surgical division. I took a surgical residency, and I went into practice in 1963. Now, at the end of the uh, second year in medical school, School, I took the first part of my national boards. At the end of my fourth year in medical school, I took the second part of my national boards. And at the end of my internship, I took the third part of my national boards. And now I'm a first-year surgical resident, and I'm able to get my New York State license to practice medicine. At the time, I was only making $70 a month. My first wife, just, we just had our first baby. And I decided to make house calls. I lived in Brooklyn, and I went to medical school and residency in Manhattan. And so I was making house calls all over Brooklyn. I had a big black bag, real gigantic one. And the nurses at Bellevue were very accommodating. They gave me everything I needed. They gave me the needles, the syringes. Uh, they gave me the aminophil and the, the joxin. The only thing they didn't give me was the morphine and the demerol. That I had to purchase myself. And at that time, you can go to a drugstore with the white prescription pad. You didn't need triplicates. And I was able to get a 50 cc vial of Demerol, 50 milligram, 30 cc vial of Demerol, 50 milligrams per cc, and that was $1.35. And then I got a 20 cc vial of morphine, uh, that was uh, 10 or 15 milligrams per cc, and that was 85 cents. So now my black bag was complete, and I was able to make house calls all over Brooklyn. It was myself and two other medical students, and we covered all of Brooklyn from Coney Island, from one end of Brooklyn to the other, to the East River. And um, we got $8 for house call before midnight and $10 for house call after midnight. Now, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and I get a phone call, and a patient has an asthma attack. And I happen to have asthma, and I woke up with, with an asthmatic attack when I answered the phone. And I said to myself, I said, I'll be right over, I told the patient, and uh, but here I am wheezing, and it doesn't look good for a wheezing doctor to go to a patient who has asthma and to treat this patient. So I took my black bag, and I took my needle and syringe, and I drew up three-tenths of a cc of adrenaline, and I injected myself into the arm, and my asthma got better. I went over to the patient's house, gave her three-tenths of a cc of adrenaline. Her asthma got better. I made $10, and I went home. And for the first time in my life, I, you know, this is the first time I ever treated myself. Never treated myself before, never gave myself an injection, never prescribed for myself. And uh, it dawned on me, you know, this is great. Mel can treat Mel. I never have to go to another doctor to treat me. I can treat myself. And I'm a damn good doctor, so, you know, why not? And that was the seed that was planted in my head from that very first moment, that Mel can treat Mel. Any symptom I have, I can take a medication for. I never took a drug I didn't have a symptom for. Never. I never did illegal drugs. I just did legal drugs illegally. <laughs> and, uh, and everything seemed to be going fine. It's 1963, and I'm now out in private practice. And... Uh, and I was working very hard. And in 1966, I was able to move from an apartment house into my first three-bedroom home 
in Hartsdale, New York. And, uh, and that was nice. And I was working very, very hard. And, um, I started to get headaches. And, um, I didn't like getting headaches. Because it interfered with, with my work. I was very busy. Uh, so I started taking Darbon compound for my headaches. And that worked for a while. And then when I was still seeing a lot of patients and I, I was getting very, you know, I, I just couldn't take this anymore. I, the Darbon wasn't working fast enough, so I took 25 milligrams of Demerol and I threw it up in a syringe and injected myself into my right buttock. And the headache went away. And then this continued and I would get headaches on a daily basis and before I knew it I had to take 50 milligrams of Demerol into my buttocks and the headache went away. And then I took 75 milligrams of Demerol into my buttocks and the headache went away. And then I took 100 milligrams of Demerol for my headache and the headache went away. And I was developing fat necrosis in my right buttock, fat necrosis in my left buttock from all the injections. And then I started to inject in my upper arms. And I developed fat necrosis in one arm and fat necrosis in the other arm. And, you know, as I would inject the Demerol, uh, I would inject 100 milligrams and 25 milligrams would leak out. And that's not cost effective for an addict. So uh, I said, uh, you know, maybe I'll try intravenous Demerol. You know, that should work. And not only that, but I can cut back. I don't have to take 100 milligrams. I'll start off with 25 milligrams. And that's what I did. Put a tourniquet around my arm. I would inject 25 milligrams of Demerol IV, and headache went away. Before I knew it, I was injecting 50 milligrams of Demerol IV, and the headache went away. And my disease progressed till I got to a point where I was injecting 200 milligrams IV push, and the headache barely went away. And uh, I would see a patient in my consultation room, and then I would go into the bathroom, take the needle and syringe, inject 200 milligrams of Demerol, wipe the blood away so nobody should see it, put my white jacket on so I could cover my tracks, and go back and see the next patient. And 200 milligrams of Demerol, IV push, didn't even phase me. It would take the headache away for a few seconds. And, um, and that went on. For quite a while, I was running out of veins. I, I remember scrubbing in the operating room, and the dorsum of my hands was swollen from all the needle tracks. And I had such shame. I, I would scrub, and I didn't want anybody to see it. And I remember going into the operating room, and I would hold my hands this way. Now, you know, when most of the surgeons, we put our gloves and gowns this way. But I had to do this because I was so ashamed that nobody should see my tracks. But that didn't stop me from using the Demerol. And uh, it got to a point where I started to use the uh, veins in the dorsum of my foot. And then those were disappearing. And then I had a patient who was a drug addict and he was use, injecting into his neck. And I looked at him and I looked at his vein in the neck, which he had. He didn't have a vein, just a track. And I said, Mel's not, sh- Mel's not that stupid. I'm not going to inject in my neck. And... Um, and I started, uh, I said, I, I have to stop, I have to stop this. And uh, it, it happened that at that uh, point in my drug addiction, uh, my first wife, uh, we just moved to Hartsdale, we just decorated the house, and my first wife was having an affair with the decorator. And I said, uh, you know, this is not good. You know, I, I, was, ter- I was devastated because my wife had an affair with the decorator. It was okay for me to run around with all the nurses. 
in the hospital where I worked. But for my wife to violate me for a decorator? And so we moved. She saw her psychiatrist, and uh, her psychiatrist told me that I should go to a psychiatrist, and I did. And uh, we moved at that point from, in 1969, to New Rochelle, from Hartsdale. And that's a few miles away, so, you know, we took a geographic so my wife wouldn't be too close to the uh, decorator. And I thought that would uh, help. Well, you ladies travel more than a couple of miles to get to your affair? <laughs> uh, but I was going to see this uh, psychiatrist, and I was going there every morning from 8 to 9, five days a week for five years uh, for psychoanalysis. And uh, I remember telling him about the Demerol, and he said, Dr. Brown, uh, do you have a, does the Demerol interfere? You know, you think you have a problem with drug addiction? I said, uh, no, because I function at work very well. I really have no problem at work. And I didn't. You see, the last thing that goes for a physician is his work performance. I didn't identify that I was in the process of getting a divorce from my first wife, that I had no relationship with my children, that I stopped talking to my two brothers, a younger brother and an older brother. I had no identification about alcoholism or drug addiction being a disease of relationships. As long as Mel was able to work, and I worked very hard, I could not have a problem. And so here I am, and, and so he said, okay, you don't have a problem. And so for five years he treated me for psychoanalysis and uh, ignored my drug addiction. Uh, didn't refer me to anybody because I didn't think I had a problem. But the point at that, from, in my recovery, was that uh, that psychiatrist didn't know anything about addiction. Neither did I. And even though I knew in the five years of psychoanalysis, I was able to understand certain things that drove Mel crazy. It didn't stop me from uh, using or drinking. So here I am in New Rochelle, and uh, it's uh, it was a big house now. See, now we have two gardeners, five bedrooms, sleeping maid, uh, and I was not happy. And the doctor across the street, he was an internist, and we used to play tennis together. And uh, at the end of tennis at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, he would say, come on, Mel, come to my place and... Uh, We'll have a shot of scotch, neat, and a Valium. So I found out neat meant just straight scotch, no ice cubes, you don't want to dilute it, and Valium. And I said, uh, uh, you know, Stanley, that was his name, Stanley. I said, Stanley, uh, isn't it dangerous to have drugs and alcohol and mix them? He said, Mel, you're only a surgeon, I'm an internist, would I lie to you? <laughs> I said, uh, hey, I, I guess not, you know, I... Uh, so I took the violin, took the scotch, and it was good. It was wonderful. So we played tennis on a daily basis and had valium and scotch. Now, one of the problems with that was my asthma started to affect me again. See? And um, and I was getting very impatient with uh, with the wheezing. I was taking valium and scotch, and, uh, and I stopped using uh, uh, the Demerol. I moved over to Percodan because I was running out of veins. And um, one night, my asthma was really bothering me, and I decided, hey, the adrenaline. Remember I took that when I was first-year surgical resident? So I drew up one cc of adrenaline. I said, uh, and I decided I'm not going to use the arm because that's too slow. I, I was very impatient with my wheezing, so I put the tourniquet on, 
And I started to inject the adrenaline. One-tenth of a cc, two-tenths of a cc, three-tenths of a cc. Stam asthma's not going away. Four-tenths, five-tenths, six-tenths, seven-tenths, eight-tenths. <sighs> That's better. The whole cc went in. My asthma went away, and all of a sudden my aorta started to pound. It was pounding, and I was terrified. I thought my aorta was going to rupture. I called up this urologist friend of mine, whose name was Arnie, and I said, Arnie, uh, I'm afraid something's happening. I, I think I'm going to die. I, I miscalculated on some adrenaline that I took for my asthma. And I, I feel my aorta's going to rupture. Come over and help me. And he came over to the house, and uh, he had me admitted to Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. By the time I got to the hospital, I was still alive. The aorta stopped pounding. And uh, when I woke up, they, I wasn't on a medical ward. I was on a psychiatric ward. I said, what am I doing here? The guy said, well, you, you tried to kill yourself. I said, what are you talking about? I was trying to get rid of my asthma. I just miscalculated on the, on the dosage. So they kept me there for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they said, all right, uh, we're putting you in the care of a psychiatrist who can give you drugs to take care of your addiction. And uh, I started seeing this doctor once a week for a year. His name was Dr. Mason. And uh, he was a specialist in pharmacology for people who had a problem. And he put me on Elevil, 25 milligrams three times a day. And at the end of a year, he said, uh, Dr. Brown, you're cured. You're doing fine. You can go back to work. And, you know, if you ever need Elevil, just write it down. You can get it and get all these detailed men that come into your office. And they were giving away Elevil like it was M&M's. So I said, hey, that's okay. And I started taking the Elevil. But I'm not going to take 25 milligrams three times a day. I took 75 milligrams three times a day. And that seemed to work. Any you guys good diagnosticians out there? Ever hear of Parkinsonism as a side effect of too much Elevil? Now, that's not an asset for a surgeon. And I remember I had to hold my hand in order to make a straight incision in the abdomen. And I said, Elville is not working for Mel. And I stopped the Elville. And this is, uh, and so I stopped the Elville and I, uh, and before I knew it, I was back on Demerol. I'm not sure how that even happened. But it was now December of, uh, 1971, and I was running out of veins again. I was back to 200 milligrams IV push. And you know, one of the things that always terrified me about all the demo I was taking, I said, you know, if I ever need an operation, they're not going to be able to premedicate me. I don't know how they're going to put me to sleep. I was so terrified, but that didn't stop me. I kept on doing that same stupid thing. And uh, so in December of 71, I was attending a surgical convention at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, and uh, I remember calling up Dr. Mason again. I said, you know, uh, I've had it. I, I, I have to, I need help. I'm, I've been injecting myself with Demerol. I, I'm tired. I'm sick and tired of having this. And he admitted me to New York Hospital in White Plains, New York. And we called it Bloomingdale's. Now, it has nothing to do with Bloomingdale's department store. It happens to be on Bloomingdale Road. And I checked myself in, and I was there for 16 days. And uh, you know, it's it's like a, uh, well, they put me in a semi-private room with a young black kid, because we were the only addicts. And the rest of the P 
community in the psychiatric division of New York Hospital in White Plains. We're all executives from IBM, General Electric, General Motors. They all had nice white hair, and they were all clean-shaven, and they all got respect. And I said, why did they put Mel with this young black kid? We're the only two addicts. All these other guys are pure alcoholics. And I remember being in the in the group there, and I was saying to myself, you know, if I ever have to come back here, I'm going to come back as an alcoholic. <laughs> because these guys had a private room, and they got respect. And I had a semi-private room with a young black kid. And he was a nice kid. But how could a nice white Jewish surgeon? And that's another thing. You know, when I went to medical school, they said, if you're Jewish, you can't be an alcoholic. There is no such thing as a Jewish alcoholic. So I thought I was safe. They're all in Florida. I went to a meeting in Florida. They're all in Florida. But, um, so now I want to leave this hospital. I'm there 16 days and, uh, I tell the doctor, you know, I want to leave. He said, you can't leave. I said, what are you talking about? He said, this is like the Roach Motel. You can check in, but you can't check out. I said, but I signed myself in. He said, I don't care. You can't sign yourself out. So I called up my first wife. We hadn't been divorced yet. And I said, uh, you know, you better get me out of here because, uh, they told me this place is going to cost like $9,000 and there will be no money for the divorce. So my wife signed me out the next day. <laughs> True story. So now I got out, and this doctor in Bloomingdale's reported me to the hospital where I was working. And we called up the administrator there, and he said, Dr. Brown, has a problem with Demerol. Now I get home, and I go to work the next day, and this guy, the administrator, comes over. The assistant administrator says, Mel, you know, uh, this Dr. Braunschweig from New York Hospital called and said, you have a problem with Demerol. I said, don't worry about it. I don't have a problem with Demerol. And I took the administrator's appendix out a month before. So he said, you know, Mel, we'll, we'll keep it quiet. We won't tell anybody. You see, they call that enabling. My first enabler is going to cover up my addiction so nothing should happen to Mel. And that was wonderful. And so I got divorced. And, um, and then I remarried. Now, I asked John if there's a, a marshal in the room to have my wife removed because she never heard my story. Uh, of course, we've been, we'll be married 25 years. I didn't think she knew that I had a problem with anything. But, uh, when we, uh, you see, my wife, before we got married, had fallen down. She's a nurse and she fell down the stairs at the hospital, broke her back, and she needed, uh, Percodan for pain. So she would come to me and say, I need a prescription for Percodan. And I was in love with her, so I wrote the prescription for Percodan. And uh, <clears throat> so what do you do when you're a Percodan addict and you need Percodan? You marry a doctor addict who can write the prescriptions for you. And that's what happened. We got married, and Percodan and Valium was part of our marriage. The disease had escalated to such a point that my wife and I used six drugstores. We were, we had so much shame going to the uh, drugstore that we had to have six. And we had one drugstore for Monday, one for Wednesday, one for Friday. And then the second week, another drugstore for Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And the ritual was, drugstore number one, 
50 Percodan, 30 Valium. Drugstore number two on Wednesday, 50 Percodan, 30 Valium. Drugstore number three on Friday. You know, we got an extra day in the weekend. 100 Percodan, 50 Valium. And then we went back to drugstore four, five, and six. And then we repeated the cycle. And we kept the calendar. We took a calendar. You know, most people write shopping. We had drugstore one, two, three, four, five, six. And one day my wife misplaced the calendar. I said, honey, which drugstore do we go to today? She said, I don't know. I don't have the calendar. I said, what do you mean you don't have the calendar? I said, I, I can't go to the drugstore. We would fight back and forth because she wouldn't go into the drugstore to pick up the prescription. I never wrote a prescription for Mel. I always wrote them for her because she was the addict. I would only take the pills at night to go to sleep. She consumed most of the pills. Trust me. Would I lie to you? So I would say, why don't you go in and pick up the prescription? She said, I'm too ashamed. She said, you pick it up. I said, you're the patient. She said, you're the doctor. They'll give you the prescription. And I would finally go into the drugstore and pick up the prescription, and I had such shame. And there was one drugstore who knew I was addicted. And every time I went in, he kept on raising the price. And every time he raised the price, I paid it. And uh, he couldn't get rid of me. You can't get rid of an addict. You know, it's like sticky gum. And uh, and then I used to go to the American College of Surgeons uh, meeting. And uh, it was like this. You'd go, a meeting was one week, and I would sign up for two postgraduate courses. And we would go three days before the meeting and then stay three days after the meeting. And so we had a nice two-week vacation. And uh, before we'd go to the meeting, I would tell the drugstore, you know, I'm going to a surgical meeting, so I have to double up on the Percodan and Valium so we could have enough to go away. So I could go to a two-week meeting as long as we had like 500 Percodan and 300 Valium. And uh, it got to a point where that wouldn't last two weeks. And I'd have to cut down the meeting from 14 days to 12 days, the next year 10 days, the next year one week. And it got to a point where I couldn't even sign up for two postgraduate courses. I would sign up for one. And one time... We were at a surgical meeting in San Francisco, and we went out my, and our consumption of Valium and Percodan was so enormous, and, and we had another suitcase just full of fleet enemas, because, you know, you get constipated. So we had to have at least a dozen fleet enemas to go away for a week so we could move our bowels. The consequences of our addiction. And uh, I told my wife, I said, you know what, this is not working, because um, something I said, let me hold 30, uh, I'll hold uh, 50 Percodan and 30 Valium for you so we have enough on the flight back because you consume too much drugs and I want to make sure that uh, we have enough. So we go to the convention and we're coming back on the airplane. We just take off from San Francisco. We're heading back to uh, JFK. And uh, my wife says, uh, honey, I need uh, some Percodan. Honey, I need some Percodan. Honey, I need some Percodan. I don't have it. What are you talking about? What about the 50 Percodan and 30 Valium? I gave you the hold for me so we get back to New York. Because this was a Sunday afternoon. I said, I don't have it. I took it myself. I'm having pain. I'm having cramps. I need the Percodan. I'm looking at my watch, 
And this pilot is not going fast enough because this one drugstore that's open in Riverdale in the Bronx closes 8 o'clock Sunday night. And I, I always carried the triplicates with me because I never knew when I had to write a prescription for, for Percodano Valium. And the plane was going and going. I said, oh, God, I need a bigger tailwind. I'll never get back. And the plane landed and we got into a cab and he said, I told him right where to go and we got to the drugstore like five minutes to eight and I wrote out the prescription and he gave me the prescription. We just made it. This is insane. Where has my disease taken me? And I remember when my wife was taking the Percodana Valley and she said, honey, you can't take Percodana Valley and you'll get addicted like me. I said, don't worry, don't worry, honey. Yeah, I can stop anytime I want. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Tonight I won't take any Percodana Valium. How do you like that? Wonderful. And so two o'clock in the morning came. I didn't take the Percodana Valium, but I didn't go to sleep. You see, I had to get up at six o'clock in the morning to operate. So that's why I took the Percodana Valium so I can get to sleep, so I can perform good surgery the next morning. Three o'clock in the morning, I couldn't get to sleep. Four o'clock in the morning, I couldn't get to sleep. And I took two Percodana and two Valium. And I knew I was hooked. I couldn't stop. And I didn't know where to go for help. I didn't know who to turn to. And um, it got to a point, and this, and now I'm moving fast forward to uh, the end of 1991. And uh, my wife and I had the flu. And um, because of the flu, I, we were taking the Percodan and Valium. And I was taking a lot of cough medicine. Now, here's where a lot of the alcohol came in, into play. And I was taking it by the court. Because four ounces wouldn't last at all. And, uh, and I remember, uh, and also because my asthma was bothering me, I was injecting myself with steroids. I was taking Decadron and Aristocort. Uh, and I had, I looked like cushionoid. I was 300 pounds. My face was bloated. And I have a driver's license, which shows that beautiful picture. Uh, and, uh, so I thought my problem was the flu. I stayed home from work for a couple of weeks because of the flu. I didn't know it was because I was addicted and I just couldn't figure out what was going on. And then on January 26th, 1992, Super, Super Bowl Sunday, and it was Super Bowl 26, that's why I remember it. Uh, I had passed out, well, a couple of days before that, I was seeing halos in the uh, on the light and... Um, it was difficult for me to see, and I went to an ophthalmologist, and he said, you know, the pressure in your eyes, the pressure is 60, 6, 0. He said, you should be blind with a pressure like that. He said, what, how, how did this happen? How did you get this glaucoma? And I told him about my steroid use, and he gave me some eye drops, and fortunately, I, I didn't go blind, but I knew being blind was not an asset for a surgeon, just like the Parkinsonism. And, uh, and a couple of days later, I, I passed out at home, and... Uh, I was on the floor, and I told my wife, I said, honey, pick me up. Uh, I can't get up. I'm 300 pounds. I, I can't get off the floor in the bedroom. And my wife said, uh, I can't. She said, I have some pain in my left groin. See, she was taking all these fleet enemas to move her bowels, and it didn't work, so she took citrate of magnesia. And uh, it turned out she, uh, she perforated her colon and had a fecal peritonitis. But here we were, she couldn't move me, and, and we live in an apartment, and in, the, in an apartment house on the 12th floor, and my stepson lives a few doors down, and just my wife and myself. And my wife 
crawled out of our apartment on the floor to her son's apartment, knocked on the door. I said, uh, and he, he opened the door and looked at his mother on the floor. And she said, call 911. And he looked down at his mother and said, uh, I don't want to get involved and closed the door. She banged on that door. He opened it up. He said, call 911, damn you. And he did. And two ambulances came and took us to the division of Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. My wife had free air under the diaphragm. She blew out her colon. I wanted to go to NYU, but the ambulance took us to Columbia. And, um, and I didn't know that I had a problem. You know, I had, uh, I couldn't get, I was at tarry stool. I was urinating, urinating and defecating on myself. I had a blood sugar of 600. I had glaucoma. I was in heart failure, liver failure, kidney failure. <clears throat> and, um, my wife had peritonitis and she almost died. And, um, and I had to do a Hartman procedure where they gave her a temporary colostomy and stapled off the rectum. And ten days later, when I was getting ready to be discharged, my wife had to stay in the hospital for a month, and she was in the intensive care unit for ten days. Ten days later, the, I was ready to be discharged, and a doctor came into my room. And he said, uh, and I didn't know who this doctor was. He was the attending. The service, the residents were taking care of us because we were service cases coming in through the emergency room. And... Uh, the attending came in and said, uh, Dr. Brown, you can leave today. But before you leave, I'd like you to do uh, two things. One, I want you to sign this paper relinquishing your DEA number because you are I don't want you to write prescriptions for yourself or for anybody else. You might kill them. You're a danger. And two, I want you to call Dr. Ray Griffin in White Plains. He's a, an addictionologist who treats physicians. Uh, and this doctor stood in my room until I called this Dr. Griffin in White Plains the treatment center for Westchester. Now, I don't know this doctor's name who came in, but I can still see his face. He was my first intervention, and he saved my life. And so often, so many of us don't want to get involved in helping another physician. And he gave me direction. And so I went to Dr. Griffin, and I was going to uh, outpatient therapy, and he told me I had to stop the Percodan and Valium, and I did, and he said, uh, you know, Mel, your urines are dirty. I said, what are you talking about? He said, Darvon compound shows up in the urines. I said, of course, I have headaches. I have to take something for my headache. You told me to stop the Percodan and Valium. You know, I just, I can take Darvon. I said, no, you can't take all this. You can't take anything. He said, I'd like to send you to Virginia, Hampton, Virginia, to the uh, Perspectives Health Program, William Farley. It's now in William, it's now Williamsburg, Virginia. And I said, suppose I don't want to go there. He said, well, then we have to uh, report you to OPNC, the Office of Professional Medical Conduct. I said, what do they do? They take away your medical license. Oh, I'll go down for an evaluation. So it was a four-day evaluation. I only needed three days. I get honors in everything I do. After three days, Dr. Farley, who was in charge, said, "Uh, Mel, you need a 12-week in-hospital rehab here. I said, well, I feel okay. Now, you have to realize, I left my wife in the apartment alone with an open wound where we had to have a visiting nurse come in every day to change her dressing. She was afraid to tell anybody that I was, I would have to go to a treatment center. And um, she was afraid to tell the superintendent of the apartment house. She was afraid to tell the visiting nurse. And I said to Dr. Farley, I said, what happens if uh, I don't come here? You know, i got a sick wife at home. He said, then we have to report you to uh, 
OPNC, and they'll take away your license. I said, okay, I'll be back in a week. And I came home, got my wife together, and, uh, oh, I guess I'm going over. But I'll, I'll finish in a, in a minute. Um, and I went down to the Farley Institute. I left my wife alone to take care of herself. I didn't care. I knew I needed help. And I didn't want to lose my license. And so I was down in uh, the Institute uh, for 12 weeks. They had a deal. You pay $8,000 for the first six weeks, and the second six weeks were only 4000 So I'm going to stay for the whole thing. You know, you, you can't get a deal like this at half price. And so I, that's why I stayed for 12 weeks. And uh, But I remember when I saw Dr. Farley, the, uh, he gave me a hug. And nobody ever hugged me like Dr. Farley. That my whole life. And I said, I want that. That was so important for me. And I spent 12 weeks there. Two weeks before I uh, left, Albany called and said, uh, you have to surrender your medical license. I said, why? Well, you had a complaint. See, my stepdaughter called Albany and said, uh, I wanted to kill her mother with all these prescriptions. So I had to surrender my medical license. And, uh, and I did that. And six months later, I was able to get the license back. And then it took me another year before I went back to work in surgery because I was terrified that uh, I felt such shame. I didn't know what to do. And um, and then in August of 93, I was going to a Caduceus meeting in White Plains. We had 20 doctors. I thought we were the only 20 crazy doctors in the whole world. And then in Scottsdale in 1993, my sponsor brought me here. And I remember at the newcomers meeting looking out and seeing a thousand physicians and their families so happy. And it took away some of the shame and it gave me hope. And I've been coming here ever since. And I operate part-time just assisting a surgery in the last seven and a half years. And it's been a wonderful recovery. Now everybody always says when I finish the talk, what happened to your wife? You know, you left her with a colostomy. Well, she had four major operations in the first two years. She's doing fine. Everything's hooked up. And, um, and we've had a wonderful nine years. And we're both sober for nine years, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful to everybody here. Thank you. Yesterday evening, I had a call on my phone. I had a, Dan was supposed to be our next speaker, and he had to leave uh, emergency. So uh, this morning, I tapped a man on the shoulder, and I said, Bud, would you fill in for me? And he said, sure. So Bud's here to share his story. Hi, good morning. My name is Byron. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, troops. How are you this morning? Uh, a spiritual odyssey. I guess my whole uh, adult life has either been a drinking odyssey or a spiritual odyssey, and you do get to feel a little bit like Odysseus because I've sure been through the whirlpool of drinking and the early uh, recovery, and I've listened to the sirens, and I've dined with the lotus eaters, uh, and I've tried to slay the uh, one-eyed uh, monster of temptation. Uh, I got my 31-year pin. Uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, a doctor friend of mine, friend of IDAA, been to many meetings, uh, gave it to me, and uh, regards this spiritual uh, business, it's always been a problem for me, and he is uh, giving me my medallion, he said, you know, bud, uh, he says he's an agnostic, but he's one of the most spiritual people I know. 
Well, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do have my moments. Uh, so let's review, if you would, with me for a moment or two, <laughs> my odyssey through drinking uh, and the 12 steps, because my spiritual uh, recovery came through uh, the steps. I was brought up in St. Paul, Minnesota, back in the 1930s, the 1940s, in my home, and that community at that time, alcoholism was looked upon as a moral problem. Somehow we alcoholics are supposed to be weak-willed, degenerate, immoral, lacking in character. You used to hear my father talk about my grandfather, who was an alcoholic, and he'd say, well, if you could just get a little character, get some backbone, you wouldn't have to drink so much. And my mother would add, well, really, Fred, I think if granddad could find religion and see the light, he wouldn't have to drink at all. And that's what I believed as a youth, that somehow we alcoholics were uh, degenerate, immoral, bad uh, people. Later on, when I got into medical school in the late 1940s, I was taught and came to believe differently. There I, taught, I was taught, uh, this was the days of being over-Freudianized, there I was taught that alcoholism uh, wasn't a moral problem, also it wasn't a disease, what it was a symptom, it was supposed to be a symptom of some underlying psychological problem. Anxiety, depression, obsessive-compulsive neurosis, uh, unresolved Oedipus complex, penis envy, well, apparently psychiatry wasn't my best subject because it wasn't until some years later I figured out that penis envy was supposed to be a female problem. Uh, I can sure tell you, guys, you know, it wasn't in the locker room at my high school. <laughs> well, I thought you were supposed to do was go see the psychologist, go see the psychiatrist, go see the marriage counselor. Uh, and they would treat this underlying psychosocial problem. And once your life got straightened out, you ought to be able to uh, drink with control socially and that sort of thing. And uh, that uh, thought process followed me until I finally uh, sobered up uh, <clears throat> 30-some years uh, later. Uh, I guess treatment along either of those lines, and by that I mean traditional moral or religious persuasion or traditional uh, psychotherapy uh, without AA have been failures for the most part because I don't think alcoholics are either crazy or moral, at least not significantly more crazy or moral than any other cross-section of society. Some of you know me and you realize that I'm a little bit flaky and those of you who don't will find it out. But then again, I know some of you too, uh, and I know that all of you have not had both oars in the water at all times either. Uh, <laughs> be that as it may, I don't think there's anything uh, really this addictive uh, personality. I think by and large, alcoholism cuts across all psychological types, and for whatever uh, reason, whatever time of life, some of us get this very rewarding feeling from alcohol or any of those other drugs alone or in combination with alcohol. We don't get the uh, rewards uh, from just using them. We get them from abusing, uh, misusing, overusing, whatever you want to call it. And with this repeated abuse over a period of time, we become an alcoholic, a drug addict, chemically dependent. Uh, I like to call what I have alcoholic addiction. That's what Dr. Silkworth called it in introduction to the big book, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Addiction, that tells me that something physical has happened to me. Maybe I was set up for it uh, originally, uh, but something has happened in the neurotransmitters, the cell membranes, the synapses, someplace. And that doesn't go away with time. Uh, I am uh, stuck with that. Now, there are some people who say that just uh, anyone can drink enough over a long enough period of time and become an alcoholic. I suppose theoretically that's correct, but I literally think that there are some people who can't become an alcoholic. You may have drunk with them. I certainly did. And it seems to me the basic problem they can't become an alcoholic is that they lack the willpower. 
they just they just do not have the old stick to itiveness. They give up too damn easy. <laughs> you know, they, go, uh, they get sick to their stomach. They get a deed up. Yeah, their wife or their boyfriend threatens to leave, and they moderate or stop. And the AA group that I go to is no place for some weak kneed SOB uh, who's going to moderate or stop the first time you puke. I mean, you you've got to be able to stick with it through thick or thin. Uh, and, and I rather resent it when people say that I have a weak will because I stuck with it till it damn near killed me. I mean, arrogant, rigid, self-centered, yeah, but I got a pretty good strong will. Well, I wish I had known some of these things when I started to drink. Uh, <laughs> uh, as a teenager, I was kind of, you know, uptight, deep down, insecure uh, uh, kid, had a hard time forming good personal relationships with either uh, the guys or the gals, had that awful teenage feeling of being terminally unique, and I was introduced to the drug ethyl alcohol, and oh boy, where have they been hiding this all my life, this is for me, do all the things I was kind of deep down too scared and insecure, uh, BS with the boys, state my opinion, be forceful in argument, dance with the girls, try to make out with the girls, <laughs> even succeeded on a couple of occasions, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be 75 years old and never been seriously kissed if it wasn't for booze. Uh, <laughs> be, yeah, because women scare the hell out of me, and that's with their clothes on. <laughs> yeah. And sex without booze, I'm told that it's done. Uh, but it would have been birth control around our house. And I say this because our relationships tend to revolve around alcohol and our drugs, our relationships with ourselves, others, and a higher power. And in my view, what recovery is, is recovery of relations. Healthy relationships with yourself, other, and a higher power, uh, chemically uh, free. Well, I didn't drink all that often at first, but when I drank, I, I always drank to get high or get uh, drunk. Uh, when I got into medical school, uh, one of my... Uh, Character defects is I'm a, a procrastinator. Also, I'm a little lazy, uh, and I always cram for examinations. Uh, and I couldn't do that uh, with all that stuff in medical school, so I had to have a little chemical help uh, with the amphetamines, uh, dexedrine in particular. And I took dexedrine uh, before every examination, stayed up all night, used other people's notes, and by that system, uh, I did pretty well. Uh, in medical school, also found out you could drink an awful lot after you had a couple of dexedrine. And over a period of years, I not only got hooked on alcohol and the amphetamines, but also the sleeping pills and the tranquilizers. And you look back over the next several years, and you try to pick out an incident that will disclose in a general way what it used to be like. And I remember a night back in 1960, it was a Friday night in March, and of course I was celebrating Thank God it's Friday. But then again, I'd been celebrating, thank God it's Wednesday, and thank God it's Thursday. I wasn't particularly partial to Friday. And my, I was at my favorite saloon. It was a place called Harry's, downtown Minneapolis. And I was having a, a couple of bourbons when a friend of mine came in. He's a very enthusiastic martini drinker, and we started to drink uh, martinis. And it's amazing how much you can drink after you've had a couple of dexedrine. I had 17 martinis there that night, the big ones, and after that, things started to get a little slow. Uh, actually, well, fully translated, that actually uh, means uh, no girls. Uh, no girls in Harry's, so we decided to rectify this miserable situation. We decided to go out into the suburbs, check the trap lines out there, uh, and uh, see if we couldn't find some of this species out in their natural habitat. Uh, and of course, I had to drive. He was too drunk to drive. Uh, <laughs> 
Now, we went out to a place called the White House out in Golden Valley, and if you think I'm loud this morning, you should hear me after 17 martinis <laughs> and a couple of dexterous. <laughs> this is just my normal speaking voice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I insulted the bartender uh, and the manager and a girl I'd been going with and a patient of mine and his uh, wife, and you can make that an ex-patient of mine and his wife, because I never saw them again. And we closed that joint and started to head downtown and down the highway down to Minneapolis, and there's an old story about two drunks headed back into town about that hour and night. And, uh, one turns around and says, hey, buddy, I think we're getting closer to town. And I says, how can you tell? And he says, uh, we're hitting more people right along. <laughs> Somehow, I, we recognized that I needed gasoline, so I pulled into this all-night filling station out there, and the attendant came in, and he put in the hose in the tank, and he came by the window, and he said something to me, and I said something to him, and he said something to me, and I thought, well, damn it, if it's like that, I take off, and the hose comes off of the gas pump, and it's this sound of gases on the ground, and I look, turn out the window, and I present him with America's number one credit card. <laughs> Oh, it's got any place in the United States if you've got guts enough to use it. <laughs> Everybody recognizes it. Don't leave home without it. <laughs> Headed on downtown Minneapolis looking for a place called the Market Barbecue. Well, my automobile was incapable of finding a Market Barbecue, but it was capable of finding a snowbank. Uh, so I'm stuck in the snowbank. I'm racing it in, uh, forward and reverse, and all of a sudden the motor stops. Some smoke comes up from under the hood of the car. I burned out the motor in my car and had to get a new motor in my car uh, the next day. And I got out of uh, the car in a less than a jolly mood and uh, started to relieve myself in the snowbank uh, in my most professional manner, I might add. Really, so su really superb technique. Uh, <laughs> when I looked up and then right across the street, not much farther from me to that table, <laughs> there it stood. It was black and white and it had fuzz inside. Uh, and it had this little light up on the roof of the car, the single one like they used to have, and it was blinking on and off, kind of like the damn car itself was having an idea. And uh, I wondered, <laughs> I wondered what they were uh, thinking. I didn't think I was showing them anything they hadn't seen. Um, well, they invited me over for a chat, uh, and uh, the big surgeon is now going over and tell the lowly cops what's up. And uh, however, uh, they allowed us how I had been drinking. They wanted to arrest me and have me spend the night in jail. And I said, you can't arrest me. I can't spend the night in jail. I am a surgeon. Uh, and I have to operate tomorrow. And... Uh, now, they apparently laughed, too. My friend told me I had them in stitches. I don't remember saying that. He told me what I <laughs> said. But they didn't arrest me that night. Uh, they arrested me several other nights. I remember getting out of that squad car and walking on down the street, staggering down the street. And, ladies and gentlemen, what happened the rest of that night is really none of your darn business. Uh, <laughs> we say that for the fifth step. we we'll admit to God, ourselves, and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Well, I think you wiser heads can see that by 1960, uh, I was having a lot of uh, problems. Uh, and I won't take you through uh, the next uh, ten years of uh, drinking and treatment programs and marital uh, discord 
and all those sorts of things. Just suffice it to say that during that period there were six uh, DUIs and five treatment uh, programs and uh, three and a half years of regular going uh, to AA. Uh, and uh, one of the things I used to do to hide my drinking uh, was when I was out on the town and to not going home to my wife and children, well, I would go out to my office uh, at the hospital, which was right on the ward, and I had a little cot in there, I'd go to sleep, I'd try to medicate my way uh, through the hangover. Well, on the night of July 15th, 1970, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was kind of zonked out on pills, and I got to go up to the men's room. So up to the men's room, but on the way back, I missed my office and tried, and uh, went in the patient's room and tried to lie down in bed with him. Uh, now, that's carrying bedside manner too far. Um, there's nothing in the oath of Hippocrates that says that thou shalt lie down beside them. Uh, <clears throat> well, the nurses came and sequestered me that night, and the doctors took me home the next day, and I <clears throat> was suspended from my job, and I lost my professorship, and my wife was suing for she wouldn't uh, talk to me, and I weighed about 40 pounds more than I do right now, and I was up in my room. She uh, made arrangements for me to get into my last treatment program, uh, and I said, oh. I, I laid there. It took me five days to get into treatment. What had gone wrong? I look back, particularly over the last five years, five years since I admitted that I was an alcoholic, uh, uh, my uh, fifth treatment program uh, coming up. I've gone to AA regularly for three and a half years. I'd been to couples groups, sensitivity groups, weekend marathons. I'd had periods of sobriety six to nine months. Over the last five years, I'd been dry way over half that period of time going to AA, and I'd start again, and what had gone wrong? Well, the first thing that occurred to me is there's no permanent improvement as long as you continue to drink or drug. You just keep going downhill. It's a progressive uh, disease. The second thing to, uh, occurred uh, to me uh, was that somehow my brain was biochemically different now. Once I got that stuff in my body, whether it was solid or liquid, it would take over, sometimes right away, sometimes with time, but it would take over. And I was an addict. And a great peace came over me uh, because for five years I'd been struggling uh, with the 12 steps of alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I finally realized that I had the first part of the first step of the program, Alcoholics Anonymous. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol. I'd admitted I was an alcoholic uh, five years I go, I could just never admit that I was powerless. And the real name of this disease, when we say up there, my name is Bud Premier and I'm an alcoholic, the real personal message to us is whether it's alcohol or drugs, is powerlessness. That's the hard thing uh, to accept. All of us trained as doctors, we've been trained, we can do it. If we try hard enough, we can uh, conquer it. Our pride gets in the way of us admitting uh, powerlessness. It's so difficult because everything we strive for and talk all our lives that we can do it. We can control it. Uh, it's, it we're different, uh, and it's extremely difficult. And so I finally knew I had that. And the second part of that step is that our lives had become unmanageable. Uh, and uh, I realized uh, finally what had happened with all these groups. I'd never been able to ask for help and accept it. And I went into treatment with a whole different attitude. I was going to do it their way rather than my way. I was going to work uh, the steps. And I had problems uh, with the second step. The second step is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I didn't have any difficulty with the insanity part. It was the power greater than me. For whatever uh, reasons, traditional gods and religions just don't work with me. But if you ask around, you can get help. 
and I got most help I got was from a Jesuit friend of mine in treatment. He said, "But God in every religion works through people. Why don't you just uh, pick a couple of people in your life and call them a power greater than you?" Well, I got two. I had an ego or an inferiority like mine. Two just didn't seem to make it. But I got up to three, four, and five, and kind of ran out of people who still loved and cared for me a little bit. And I said, <clears throat> "That's got to be a power greater than." Myself, but I didn't know whether you could do that uh, or not. So I looked in the big book, and right there on page 12 in italics, it says, "Choose your own conception of God." So I'll try this. And the uh, third step is uh, made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood Him. Well, I couldn't turn my whole will over then. I can now, but I'd have to start with what was bothering me most. Uh, it was my will to drink. I'd say, "Okay, Lou. Okay, Ruth. Okay." Uh, Fritz, uh, can I have a drink? No, you can't have a drink. You're an alcoholic. Can I take a pill? No, you can't take a pill either. You're a pill head. Should I take that professorship in Omaha shortly after treatment? No, you stick around AA and aftercare in Minneapolis, and furthermore, your family doesn't want to move. Shall I chase the neighbor's wife? No, chase her daughter. Well, no, that's, <laughs> that's my old friend Lou. You know, Lucifer, there's always a dark side to the higher power. I, uh, <laughs> fallen angel. Yeah. Well, I've known some of these people early in AA and outside of AA. It seemed like there was a remarkable relationship, God, with a lousy relationship uh, with people. And that's one of the remarkable things I found out about AA. It's a place where I can speak the religious, philosophical, intellectual truths of my life in an arena of acceptance like I've never found before. The fourth step is made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I guess that's about the oldest philosophical advice in the Western world. Know yourself as you are, not as you want to be, warts and all, assets and all. And then in the fifth step, uh, admit it to God, ourselves, and another human being. And I've taken several fifth steps, and there's nothing I've said in those fifth steps that I couldn't tell uh, you today. It's wonderfully freeing. Uh, to do that. I don't have to, but if it would help me, and I think it might help some in, somebody else, I'm free uh, to do that. <clears throat> For those of you who may be early in recovery, I think it's so important to work the eighth and the ninth steps to make a list of all the people you harmed and make um, uh, direct amends. And you know where our AA promises come in the big book. They come after uh, the ninth uh, step. And it says if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we're going to be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We'll not regret the past and I wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we know peace. It's so important to clean up the past so that baggage doesn't uh, affect you uh, in your relationships uh, today. Uh, the tenth step is one of the greatest learnings. Uh, continue to take personal inventory and promptly admit it when you're wrong. Well, I continue to take the inventory, but that admitting it that I was wrong. Uh, it's so important to be real rather than to be uh, right. And I was such a know-it-all SOB that was so hard uh, for me to learn. But I learned it. It's one of the greatest learnings in the program uh, for me. And I do try to practice daily meditation uh, but Bud's problem is still uh, Bud. I think I'm pretty much saddled with some basic character uh, structure. Uh, and the problem is, when I was drinking and drugging, uh, it would work against me. And I figured out if I could sober up and use the 12 steps, that could, this stuff could start working for me rather than working uh, against me. And I think I had the 
go through some deep-seated analysis. I take in psychological tests, and basically I'm within the range of uh, normals. I say a little bit uh, flaky, but uh, I'm within a normal range. Uh, so I had to take a look at myself uh, through this program and find something out about myself. I was 43 years of age, and I could use the terminology, but I really knew nothing about myself. Sure, I could call myself compulsive, but uh, what did that mean for me? Well, I finally found out that compulsive means uh, I'm obviously not uh, phlegmatic or laid back. It means when I'm threatened, i got to do something uh, about it. And that can lead, you know, that can lead to some strength of character. Hardworking, persistent, punctual, but if you're deep down insecure... Like I am, it leads to problems. Perfectionistic, over-inhibited, difficult time relaxing, difficult time making up your mind, exaggerated uh, sense of duty. And I, oh, I was so deep down insecure and so sensitive. My sensitivity bordered on paranoia. Um, matter of fact, my paranoia got so bad several years ago, I tried to join Paranoids Anonymous, uh, but they wouldn't tell me where they met. That's uh, so, yes, apparently a very suspicious group. I'll bet you some of you know. I had these dependency problems, too, uh, uh, but I denied them. I I, I wouldn't admit uh, to them. Uh, and I, know, I can do it by myself, uh, mother. So those are a few of the basic characteristics I, I had. Now, a compulsive person uh, who's deep down scared also tends to be uh, impulsive. Poor emotional control, low frustration tolerance. My kind of alcoholic has been called His Majesty the Baby. He wants what he wants, and he wants it now. Very impatient and intolerant. And I am kind of a compulsive, rigid old crowd, and I say, that's just doing my own thing. It's none of your damn business. And I tend to repeat a lot of this inappropriate behavior. You know, my old Calvinistic ideals are up here, and my behavior is down here. And you know it's in between is an awful lot of guilt. And I went around for years and years with all these guilt feelings. I could never figure out uh, why I had these uh, guilt feelings. And I finally figured it out. I was guilty. <laughs> now, if you bring your behavior up to reasonable levels, and if you bring your perfectionistic ideals about what you ought to be down to reasonable levels, you can live relatively uh, comfortably. And I'm so sensitive. I'm so unreal about it. Just the slightest little criticism or rejection, and I get hurt. When I'm hurt, I get angry, but I'm too doggone scared and insecure to do anything about it. You say, oh, that body, oh, no, 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 no. That's all right. But I'm going to guess you, SOB. <laughs> it may take me five years, or it may take me ten years, but I'm going to guess you. <laughs> now, that's known as a resentment, and resentments have literally destroyed more alcoholics than anything else. I'm a little bit, I'm fairly comfortable with a little bit of anxiety, apprehension, but I'm not comfortable with angry feelings. I had three lousy ways of handling my angry feelings. Blowing up in impulsive anger, bottling it up in resentment, or leaking it off uh, in sarcasm. And I've had to develop a repertoire for handling uh, my angry feelings. And I had these dependency problems, but I couldn't accept them. I'd fight them. I don't need anybody else. And that makes it very lonely, hostile, and self-centered. And this is all a pretty bad bag, and that's all before I start drinking. We can just call this pain and this pleasure. Uh, it didn't take me much for move for pain to pleasure. I was born four drinks under par. It was a genetic uh, problem. Uh, after that, I took a little bit more. 
I, I drink because I drank. I drink because of the awful things I did. I drink to remember. I drink to forget. I drink to oblivion. And I drink because that was the last coping mechanism I had in life. That's where the relief from the pain was. That's where any pleasure was. And now we can write addicted in here. And that's the way I came in uh, to treatment into AA. Impatient, intolerant, inappropriate, guilty, uh, addicted, hurt, angry, fearful, hostile, self-centered, SOB. Deeply depressed, contemplating suicide. On the, on the one hand, I, you can see that uh, booze is killing you. On the other hand, life without it does not seem worthwhile. And the one thing that is true about that is that life without it can, not is not true, is that life without it can be worthwhile. And thank God for the people that went before, Bill and Dr. Bob, the old timers, the people in treatment, the guys in my age group, my sponsor. I saw people who had this disease as bad or worse than I did, and they were living the kind of life I'd always wanted to live. And I said, boy, if they can do it, I can do it. And I used them for modeling. And I'll be eternally grateful to those people. And about the time I lose my gratitude is about the time I'm going to lose my uh, sobriety. So it also takes some time uh, to get sober. I think you can go dry instantly. I think you can have an instant spiritual awakening. But it takes time to learn how to live uh, comfortably without alcohol and drugs and, and develop those uh, relationships. And it also takes some discipline. Uh, discipline in our case means just living by the rules, the 12 steps. If I uh, if 12 steps operate in my life, I don't have to be so impulsive and impatient anymore. I can be more alert to my surroundings, more aware of the alternatives, make responsible choices. Uh, and uh, sure, I'm still compulsive, but I don't have to be so doggone rigid about it. I can get some flexibility in my life, learn how to let go and let God, or just let go and let anybody. But for God's sake, let go. If you're a hard-driving drinker or drugger like uh, I was, well, what do we do with all this time? I think if you're anything like me, I think we should be active in our communities, active in our churches, active in AA, committed to sobriety, committed to a better way of life, committed to our fellow uh, man. And sure, I'm still sensitive, but I don't have to be so unreal about it. What is this? Most of this, all of this is about getting in touch with our real feelings, becoming more perceptive of the real joys and sorrows in life, more understanding of ourselves and our fellow man, and more creative. And that takes guts. It takes courage for each and every uh, one of us, the AAs and the Al-Anons to face the good days and face the bad days and create a new life uh, in sobriety. And sure, I got these dependency problems, uh, but I don't fight them anymore. I accept them. I've got to, I accept the fact that I've got a disease that some people call chemical dependency. I accept the fact that I need other people, that I need AA, that I need uh, a, a higher uh, power, and now I can become interdependent, loving, and caring. And that's a pretty good place to be. Alert, aware, responsible, active, committed, perceptive, understanding, interdependent, loving, and caring. This is health, and that's disease, and this is sobriety, and this is the insanity of alcoholism and chemical dependency. Now, we wouldn't be full-functioning human beings if we didn't have all of these feelings and values and attitudes and more. But more and more as we spend our life and get committed to this 12-step program, we spend more of it over in this area of positive feelings and values and attitudes where we haven't been for a long time. And when your fulfilling life returns, mental health returns, and with it a spiritual way. It just happens uh, uh, through these steps. The 12th step says having a, had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I didn't think it would happen to me. But it did. It took about a year. And the essence of the spiritual awakening for me was a loss of that awful, isolated, lonely, rejected, alienated, nobody understands uh, me feeling. The worst damn feeling is... Uh, in the world. 
if alcoholism is anything, it's a lonely disease. And I just don't have that feeling anymore. Now I feel that everything in this universe world is connected, uh, that I'm a part of it, that uh, I belong to you, you belong to me. I am not an aberration anymore. I, I belong uh, here. I belong in this world. Because of that, the God of my understanding, the treatment center, well, my last treatment center, Alcoholics uh, Anonymous, it's not been necessary for me to take a drink of alcohol or mood-changing chemical since July 19th of 1970. Now, there's an old Arab proverb that states when you're out in the desert alone and you've stumbled and fallen, that's the place to look for gold. Well, well, we've been out there alone and we've stumbled and fallen. This is the place to look for gold. The gold is in here, in the meetings, in the fellowship, in the AA. It's not out in the cocktail parties or the coke parties or the pot parties. The gold is right here. And to get back to my medical model, we got this disease and we've been diagnosed by experts, many of us, but the expert that's got to diagnose us is us. And the name of this disease for me is powerlessness. We've got this disease, and this recovery program works. And it works for everyone uh, who works at it. Through this recovery program, we can become what we truly are, rather than what alcohol and the other drugs made us. Thank you. My name's John. I'm an alcoholic. Sound bad. I was sitting down there laughing so hard I didn't know if I'd be able to get up here. You know, it's good to be able to laugh. I think sometimes at these meetings, if somebody, the reason I was laughing so hard because I went down to Minneapolis Street and, and uh, I don't know if we get around to that, but you know, if you sit in here, you'll hear you, you can identify this where it's so real that, you know, you'll about die laughing. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, we talk about each of us are a miracle, and some of us, uh, I'd write a book about this, I was telling somebody, but nobody believe it except the alcoholics and how they don't buy books, so I don't know why I bother. It's kind of like somebody said, are they going to buy Clinton's book? And they said, why? He's not going to tell the truth anyway. So, <laughs> But anyway, I, I, I'm here to share my journey with you. And the first time I spoke, my sponsor had volunteered my services, and I said, what am I going to tell him? And he said, every alcoholic has a different journey. We need to say that because there's someone different in here that needs to hear hear that. And I just heard some of mine here how some of us feel like we shouldn't have been in this world. October 29, 1932, I was born, and my mother was a nurse, and they had a big celebration going. All our nurses' friends were there that she'd gone to school with to deliver this first baby. And and uh, they had 10 gallons of whiskey and 50 gallons of wine to be sure they had enough to drink at that big celebration of my birth. When I was born, I didn't breathe, and they tried everything. My grandmother gave me the hot and cold water and slapped my rear and all this stuff, and the doctor reached in his black bag someone just talked about, got the adrenaline out, put it directly in my heart, and I'm here today. So, see, I shouldn't even been here. Now, there's more to that story before that because my my mother and dad weren't bar- married when I was conceived, so uh, my dad always said I was the fault of all this problem he had. <laughs> it was all your fault, he'd say. So, anyway, I'm struggling around this world. I'm the oldest of ten children. At five years old, they took me to first grade and dumped me out at the door, and I walked in there. And I've heard somebody say, I didn't have a drink the first day I went to school, but I sure as hell needed one. I'd have, been, I'd have felt better, you know. So we, we all, we talk about these insecurities, we talk about these feelings, and we all have some of the same stuff, because we all are, have, are different from other people. Uh, the, the thing we're different about is we found something that worked. There's a lot of people have these insecurities, but they just still have them. They're in the houses and they're, we got well. We got weller than well because we're alcoholics. We're the chosen ones. We're lucky. That's what it means when I say I'm a grateful alcoholic. But see, I had to go down a long path and, uh, 
we in 30 minutes here. The reason we have it 30 minutes is so we don't tell a whole lot of, a lot of uh, too much of drunk along, but we need to identify of, of how long our path is, because each of us have to go to whatever lengths we have to go to, and some of us are lucky enough when we get to a bottom that we quit and get to sober up and stay sober, and others have to struggle and struggle and can't find powerless. Uh, here I was at the referral center a month or so ago, and there was a guy in there that was in treatment with me 21 years ago, and he's still fighting it. He was 23 years old, and I was 48. And he's in 43 now, 44. So, whatever. I, I don't know that answer. All I know is I'm grateful that I had to go through what the hell I had to go through to make me not want to want to go back there. They tell us when we forget how bad it was, we'll go back. Our brain's still an alcoholic, and we still know what will solve our problem if we don't have any other way to solve it. So, I was in trouble in high school. I was one of those kids that got drunk every weekend, and then we were the bootleg days that they talked about from Oklahoma, Georgia, you know, when I was 14, 15 years old, we could go bootleggers and get a fifth of whiskey. It was no, there was no, uh, you know, that was just, we did it. Weekends we went out and got a date, went to a dance hall, got drunk and came home puked and got up next day and went to school. You know, and sometimes we talked about it, sometimes we didn't. Sometimes we had a wreck and didn't get back, you know. And so today, uh, these things are still happening in the town I'm from. Nobody's learned a thing. It's kind of like, I don't like to bring smoking of it. We were reading a grapevine about Eddie. And 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 Ebby died of all of his his emphysema thing ultimately. And I said we didn't learn a thing. Bill Wilson died, Bob died, and Ebby died, and people are still dying today. But that hasn't been one of my addictions, so I can talk about. <laughs> I chewed the hell out of cigars, though. So I had to give that up. But anyway, uh, I was in trouble in high school. And see, I had ambitions of going to college, but by the time I got out of high school, I didn't care about going to college. I was drinking, running around, I was having more fun. I was just going to go to work for my dad. But there's a Korean War came along, and I'm a, I'm a patriotic guy. I went to school. Now, I had to drink a lot about that because all my buddies went to, to the Army, and I'd come home on weekends and get drunk, and all at once one of my cousins was brought home in a box, and I went to a funeral. And I knew all those people were talking about me, and how do you how do you deal with all this stuff? You just keep drinking. You just wipe it all out. So finally, the day came, and I went off to, to uh, college, and... Uh, you know, I'm an alcoholic in college, just like high school. Get drunk on weekends, you can survive during the week. And I, I don't know how we, people ask you, how did you get through all that? I don't know. We try harder. We work harder. We got to do in four days what the rest of them do in seven, you know? When you're drunk, drunk on Friday night and you come back with a hangover on Monday, you don't have much time to catch up in there. But I finally graduated, you know, and then I was surprised myself, really. I'd been a, a good student until I met all these other guys that were studying harder than I was. I got out of the army. I mean, I got out of school and I had to go to the army. In those days, it's three, you know, two years active duty, two years active reserve, and two years active stand, or standby. So I knew I had that duty, but then at that time, they weren't calling veterinarians. I had a, a commission. And so I'm sitting around the stockyards in Oklahoma City getting drunk and resentments because i got to go to the Army and i trying to make some money. And I've been broke all my life through this school and everything. If I had a $20 bill, I was rich, and then I spent it. <laughs> Drink it. I'd save my money all week so I could get drunk all weekend. But anyway, I went to the Army. Same thing in the Army. But when I was talking about Minnesota, in the summer of my junior, senior year, we had to work in a clinic someplace. That was part of a course, and you had to get a grade from somebody. And none of the veterinarians around would hire me because they knew that the word was out. I was single, and I was, wasn't responsible because of my alcoholism. They didn't say I was drunk, uh, that reason. But anyway, uh, I couldn't get a job, so I went to work for the federal government in Minnesota. And Minneapolis the headquarters, and I worked out in northern Minnesota, testing banks, testing cows. And that was my first government service. I ended up retiring here a few years ago, and that time counted. I didn't know God was adding up time so I could retire, you know. 
So anyway, uh, I go to the Army, and then we go to Chicago, and I meet a, two other alcoholics, and we get an apartment together, and it's the same thing. We get drunk every night and really get drunk on weekends, and we got to fight like hell to keep up the grades. So all my life, I've had a millstone around my neck that I had to work harder and harder, and I carried that thing until I couldn't carry it anymore. Uh, I decided to get away from this mess. I volunteered to go overseas, and sure enough, I got my name picked. The rest of these guys had to, had to sit in Minneapolis their whole two years. I'd have never survived it. I got in trouble in Minneapolis. I won't go through that story. But the police were chasing me one night, and I was on foot, and they were in the car, and I'm high, I'm like a coyote. I'm drunk. And I was doing what you were doing in the, in the snowbank one reason I was laughing. And anyway, that, but see, we, we're survivors. Yeah, we're, we're, they could turn us loose in the middle of a mountain with nothing. We'd survive because we're alcoholics. We know how to get along. But anyway, getting back to that Army deal, I went overseas, and I was 18 months overseas, and said, well, I'm really going to straighten out now. And I always knew if I, my friends got married to get straightened out, and then they settled down. So that was my idea. I got married, took my bride with me. I married a good alcoholic girl that drank with me, and we had fun together <laughs> with a lot of whiskey. Uh, so we take off and go to Italy. Well, here I am in Italy. I took me along. I got drunk. We only, the ship only docked one time on the way in Morocco, and I got off ship, got drunk, came back on, and they knew what was coming Italy before I got there because I showed them I'm a drunk alcoholic veterinarian. Anyway, 18 months in Italy, uh, of all things, I was the in charge of making sanitary inspections of all the plants that sold military services besides running the clinic and running all it. I always had 10 jobs. And one of my deals was uh, inspecting wine plants. Now, if you're an alcoholic and you go to a wine plant, and you have all the samples, and they feed you and wine you and dine you and, and haul you around and, and all this stuff. And, and uh, There's lots of those sad, sad stories. Anyway, uh, it's, I had to get out of the service after 18 months. I didn't have a practice to go back to, and I could have stayed in the military and made a career out of it. But, see, I had to leave that because they were after me. If they caught up with me, I'd probably been in Leavenworth because I had a lot of things going. First place I was broke over there. I took my wife over on my own because we were only going to be there 18 months, and I had to rent an apartment. You know, military pay was two twenty-five a month for a first lieutenant plus a hundred dollar medical bonus. I had to send a hundred home to make a payment on my car. So we were living on two twenty-five a month, and eighty dollars of that went for an apartment. Well, anyway, if you're an alcoholic, you can make anything work, though. But anyway, uh, while we were over there, my oldest daughter was born in a military hospital, and the doctors are real nice to me, and they give us good service. That that whole deal cost me eight dollars for food for my wife in the hospital. So we came back home, and and then you know. I don't know how, except God has a plan and all these things in my life. Uh, when I say thy will be done today, I know that all this happened for a reason. But anyway, I come home and my wife is, had, we, had, was pregnant with a second child. We come home with nothing. I knew I had to make some money, I had a responsibility, and I wanted to do that. So I started on a practice by myself, and I worked seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I ran, I did anything. Somebody's asking what kind of practice I had, and I said anything. I descended skunks, castrated raccoons, rope bulls, and cows, horses. Took care of dogs in the meantime. I would spray dogs in the evening or noon between times and then run out and get my pickup and hit the road. So after about a year and a half of that, I finally got one partner. Took a man in and hired him for a year. But to make a long story short out of this massive practice, I ended up with three partners. We had a new clinic. The highway came through and wiped out my old clinic. And, you know, God sends a lot of things. That's $45,000 just happened to come along here, so. We built this big new clinic, and by that time I made partners out of all these guys, and I sold them my shares, and I went out and built me a new home. I was only in practice two and a half years, and I paid for everything, and I'm, I'm building a home. And I, today my kids say, how did you do that? I don't know, you know. I really don't know. But I was I was willing and able and worked. So 
But see, our disease gets us. I was only going to drink on weekends. I was only going to drink in the evening. And finally, in a short time, I'm tired. And I was warned about this in veterinary school by another veterinarian who'd been in Iowa who had drank his practice up. And he knew he could see me. And he kept telling me, don't let alcohol get you. You know, you got to watch that. I've been watching it all my life. So anyway, what happened to me in a short period of time is by 1972, I'm drunk. I'm, I'm running around the country with three-fifths of my pickup, drinking as I drive. And, you know, we're all bulletproof and the law is, we're above the law and we're friends with everybody. And, uh, so anyway, we had a lot of enablers, in other words. 72, I had a head-on crash that put me in a lot of legal problems. Two people were, dead, were put in the hospital and I was put on probation. Probation officer, I'd go see once a month. All these things happen, and any alcoholic would say, isn't that enough? Not me. You know, they didn't send me to AA. My lawyer is an alcoholic, and he didn't want to embarrass me. The judge wanted to send me to AA, and he did. They talked him out of it. So eight years later, I finally got here. But the other thing is, when that wreck happened, I bring this up because of your licensing thing. You know, we all take the oath, and we all have these codes of conduct. The only one I read is don't get caught drunk. And I'd been caught, caught drunk. And so I knew somebody was going to come by to see me, and they're going to give me the the third degree, and they're going to take my license. They're going, I'm, you know, the only way I can overcome that fear. I was drunk 24 hours after that wreck because that's the only way I knew how to live. And so I hid. I quit going to convention. I quit going to any continuing education. I, the only place I'd go to get my continuing education was Las Vegas. And I'd sign in, and I'd pay them the money for the convention, and I'd go out and stay drunk for a week and come back and pick up my piece of paper and come home. Well, you do that a few times, you get a little bit behind in your skill, you know. So finally, I had these three partners, and I was letting them do all the, the stuff, and I was just doing what I wanted to. So by 1977, they got tired of me. And, of course, in this deal, we had a buy and sell deal, and they, they were going to leave or I was going to leave, and I didn't want to buy them back out because I couldn't support it all. So I left. I gave up what I'd worked for for 30 years, and I all I was trying to do was stay alive. I just wanted... If, if I wouldn't have all this stress. Now, not only was I in that clinic with those three people, but see, I'm an alcoholic. And my dad got in trouble with a real estate deal, so I'm helping him out. So I was building homes, selling lots, developing lots. I had a, a dog food plant out here that we were killing uh, down our cattle and selling for dog food. And all this stuff going, see, I've got five kids by now, and I need to make all the money I can. And the more money I made, the more I could not keep any money. I couldn't pay my taxes at the end of the year. We're all, we're all just living high on the hog, you know. And, but it took a lot of money. And again, the kids say, how did you ever send us all to college? I don't know, you know. So by 19, by, uh, 1977, when I, when I gave up my practice for 10 months, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't stay sober enough to look for a job. I just stayed drunk. Now I thought in my own mind I was really going to die. I'd, I'd had high blood pressure. I had all, and I just thought it'll happen and I had insurance and I couldn't, I was powerless to, to do anything with my life. But God came along and gave me another deal. Some veterinarian quitted a job, and I'd put in an application as a meat inspector, and I sure didn't want to work there. But one day they called me and said, show up in Arkansas, we'll hire you. So I went, and I went drunk. And I had barely could sober up enough to, to sign in that day. And, you know, again, if they saw who I was, they would, they would have never hired me. But God kept us in that deal. So for two years, I went to this packing plant over here on the east side of the city every morning. I'd go there with the dry heaves and the hangovers, because the only way I knew how to survive was I'd drink every night till I... Went to bed and get up in the morning. I didn't drink in the morning, though. But I'd get me a couple of Cokes to try to keep the dry heaves down. I'd drive by the rescue mission over here and see these hundred guys standing out in the front. And I'd say, isn't that sickening? Here I am, sicker than they are. So we have to go through what we have to go through. But by uh, June, 9th, June the 21st, 1980, was my day of uh, the end of the rope. 
I'd got to go into suicide. I'd been out of the house for a week. If you're an alcoholic, you don't think suicide will happen. You just get on enough drugs, enough alcohol, and something's got to blow, and, and it'll seem like the best idea you ever had. It did for me. I was trained to say you never do that. My religion, I, I remember as a little kid of some farmer cut his throat. And I, God, how could anybody commit suicide? But here I was. I had the stuff, and I had I had a plan, and uh, I won't go. I used to describe this, but sometimes some of you people might want to go do it, so I won't do that anymore. But I used a drug that was going to. Anyway, but it didn't happen. I think it must have been my grandmother's prayers. And uh, this old lady was in the nursing home for eight years, and I'd go see her, and she'd say, are you still going to church? Two of her sons had one commit suicide and one drank himself to death because they quit going to church, she thought. I'd come in there drunk that she knew it. So her prayers must have been the thing that stopped that deal. So again, the spiritual thing, I start off on this journey of giving up. On Monday, I called a treatment center, looked under yellow pages under alcoholic. Before that, a lot of things had happened. People had tried to get me to go do something. I I wouldn't give up, couldn't give up, didn't know what give up was. But that day I did. Also, June the 21st, my oldest son's 21st birthday, and I hadn't been home for a week, and I didn't see him, and that's how a mess I was in. So I entered that uh, up right up the street here, 13, 14 blocks is at St. Anthony Hospital, and I walked into there and turned my will and my life over to whoever was in there. And there were some people there that were there to help me. A lot of them came to see me. Uh, miracles started happening. First place, I did surrender. I think we take the third step. We, I turned my will and my life over to care of God because I... That that suicide thing, my prayer was just God help me when I got to that point and, and didn't do it. So I went in there and I didn't know what the solution was. I was willing to do anything they told me. Willing is a dying, the book says. And so while I was in there, this, they, they some every day after we got started in our program, they talked about the steps. And the second step, they said you come to believe that something bigger than you can keep you sober. And man, the light went on. That's it. And so I started in this deal. I looked at these twelve steps, and that's what they're all about: getting right with God. And getting right with the other your other people in the world and getting right with yourself. And someone told me later that's how you get serenity. That's a recipe. If you'll do those things, you'll find something called serenity. The serenity prayer was on the wall. I didn't know what that word meant. I thought that was a picture. I'd never read the word. You know, we, these things have been around, but we never read them. We never take this time. But that that deal was to start me on. Uh, I leave there and I meet some other friends and I go to those AA meetings every day. And somebody sent me out to Amarillo. I talked about this. I met Conway out there, and he invited me to go to Atlanta. I go there. A year later, uh, on that trip, I met my friend Daryl, and we hung together. because we knew each other. We'd seen each other before. We didn't know each other before. That's another thing, a, a thing you find in AA, that you'll have friends in AA that they're a lot closer than anybody in your family because we know each other, and those, that family doesn't know us. So this journey of finding IDAA and going to those first meetings and and starting a little group, and and, uh, and then I talked about people not coming to see me about the license. One of my men from my profession was that, and and my friend Daryl talked about this too. We both about died the same way, but something came at some of these meetings. People said, you need to go help other docs. Nobody, a lot of docs are dying, and I know veterinarians are dying because we are out there by ourselves, and nobody reports us. And so for a while, we, we started this uh, impaired thing, and so... I was involved in, 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 because I was working for the government. Most veterinarians don't want anybody to know they're an alcoholic, but I could, I could let them know I was because they I didn't have anything to do with my practice. So I was, I got involved with some impaired, uh, intervention things and I got to see some people trained, you know, want to do this thing. And then as being involved with this IDAA and with the, our doctor's group, I got to see a whole bunch of people. You know, it's, it's, it's humbling really to be a part of some, some of the people said that we're a part of each other's sobriety. 
But that's what God uses us. And I think uh, my old friend uh, John Butcher has been that real active, helping a lot of docs. And God's kept him around. He had 89 birthdays, so you know, I'm not stupid. I think as long as we as we do God's work, He'll keep us around as long as He needs us. And I'm kind of enjoying life today. I've got 15 little grandkids that really love Papa John. I feed them lots of food. <laughs> got a swimming pool. They all like to come. And so, life, you know, life can be good. But then there's always, all of us have things in our lives that, that uh, aren't always the way. Nothing's going to be perfect in your life. All of you have to have a cross or two of some kind. And so it might be that your wife or your children or something, this disease is still rampant. But, you know, all we can do for those people is pray for them, be there for them. Don't be an enabler. Most of us have enabled each other, and, we, and you can enable them to die. So you have to cut yourself off from those things. You know, at first you think you'd die if your wife died, and then pretty soon uh, with, with by, by working these steps, that's not your problem. That, that's between her, them and God. And so you can, you can live and, and be in that serene thing and, and let happen what's going to happen, that acceptance. Dr. Dr. Paul's acceptance, I read that thing twice a day, every day. And if I hadn't been for a little book called Acceptance and that deal in a big book called Acceptance, I, I wouldn't be here today because I, I, when I came here, I couldn't accept it. So we are uh, running this thing kind of close to time, but I, I, there's no way that, you know, my whole life, you hear people say this, but, the, you, you know, until you, you stop and realize it, everything I have today, including my life, I owe to AA and to IDAA, which is a, a a separate part of this thing, but it's the it's the gravy on it that we we look forward to seeing each other when we can uh, get back together once a year. Sometimes we call each other in between times, but it's a contact that we always know that they're there. And, and when we lose one of our friends that we've seen here, there was a man's name read last night that I didn't know had died, and I've always looked forward to seeing Don from Arkansas. But so you know, uh, some of us once in a while we get a little lax and think, well, I don't want to go to that. IDA meeting it's too far. We start making a little excuse and we skip one year. Like somebody said when we do, man, we're looking forward to that next one because we miss it when we're not here. But it's the same way with AA meetings. My old friend John Butcher just said he went to a meeting Monday night and his nurses were driving him. And anyway, he said, you know, we need to be there sitting in that chair so they know it works. We'll be there for the newcomer. And, and that's what it's all about. They tell you if you don't give it away, you can't keep it. And I don't ever want to go back where I was June 21st, 1980. I remember the pain. Somebody talked about all the going through recovery, getting honest that first time, working these steps the first time. Man, what a mental anguish. I don't want to go through that again. I'm satisfied with where I'm at today, and I, I can maintain that if I keep doing the things I'm doing. And real quick, somebody talked about taking up a collection at your uh, Caduceus thing to help with the scholarship. Now, I'm amazed that every time I come to these things, the scholarship it's, all these people are being supported by a scholarship thing. I haven't had to ask for that, but I. But what I'm getting at is that we can all help somebody else through a lot of different things. You can do it in different ways. But our little group at the Western Club out here that they talked about on Saturday morning, uh, in 1984, I went down here to the Norman uh, State Hospital. There's 92 people in here trying to get sober, 72. And the only two big books in there were the two I took in. So I went back to a men's group and I said, we need to buy some books to take down there to Norman. Those drunks need help. So we started just Everybody give me a little money now and then. When I got a hundred dollars, I'd buy a case of books. Well, that was going kind of slow, so we started taking up a collection at each meeting. And now we have two groups, eight o'clock and nine fifteen. So there's, but there's still about the same number of people, 120, 150 each Sunday or Saturday. So we have a collection of around a hundred dollars. Over this time since '84, we have purchased 48,000 books and given them to them, the state hospital, to the detox centers here in Oklahoma City, to people that go to prisons. 
You know, and that's a little a little thing that can happen by each of you being a part. I mean, being the messenger. I don't know. One thing about that too is for being in charge of that thing, I go to there every Saturday. And maybe if I hadn't taken that little job on, I might have found an excuse not to go on Saturday. But now I sit there and I'm getting to be one of the oldest ones sitting in that meeting. You know, when I first went there, and they said, I said, "How in the world does anybody get to be five years, ten years, fifteen years? How do you how do you get to be an old timer? Don't drink and don't die." <laughs> so I'm glad to be here. Good to see y'all. Now this this will start back again. I think at 1:15. I haven't looked at my thing. I'm sure that's right. But we have another another rotation of uh, six speakers this afternoon. No, no, this afternoon is free. Excuse me. This is Friday. So Saturday morning we're going to start an early bird meeting again, and uh, then there will be uh, six in the morning and six in the afternoon all days tomorrow. So anyway, I'm glad you're all here. I'm glad I'm here, and we'll close with the Lord's prayer. Thank you.